0: Come down. The show's about to start. Turn it up loud. Turn it up loud. Any reaper not the audience. Are they eating? of the danger dangerous. of oh, the money. Listen. Hear the difference. Right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Right now dangers of the mind da- da- dangers of the mind my mind is playing tricks on so my mind is playing tricks on so me. no longer can fear be your friend fear.
1: what happens on earth stays on earth and i can't take these feelings with me so hopefully they disperse
0: the position of your mind determines the posture of your life dangers oh, oh. The Dangers of the Mind Podcast. The the, the Dangers of the Mind Podcast with Kristen Hopkins.
2: What's up? What's up? What's up, guys? It's your girl, Kristen Hopkins, here for another Dangers of the Mind episode. If you are joining me for the very first time, just know you're in a safe space, a space where you can share the daily attacks that delay our progress, a space where we allow you to understand very practical social and emotional skills through resilient stories and practical life experiences in the field, a space to be vulnerable and growth at the same time. I'm so excited because today is a very special day for many reasons, we are breathing first and foremost, right? We are dominating daily attacks against our thought life, and we are becoming a better person every single day. Well, today I have someone that doesn't just talk the talk, but walks it as well. Samuel is an educator who believes that culturally responsive pedagogy is critical to addressing the issues of the opportunity and access gap. As someone who is a social justice oriented He sees education as one of the most powerful mechanisms in breaking the cycles of mass incarceration and poverty that malign people of color in the United States. He has been a teacher, administrator, and continues to work at the district level in urban settings, utilizing those experiences to empower stakeholders in schools and schools communities. So guys, welcome Samuel Oladipo.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Kristen. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Of course. I'm really excited about today's topic because um, I'm just grateful to talk to you about this topic in general. And so we're going to jump right into it. The social emotional buy-in no cap. That is what we're calling this. And we're speaking towards the effects of social emotional learning with adults buy-in. So, Sam. Um, just first and foremost, thank you for taking time to talk to me today, um, but I'm excited more importantly because I know the people need to hear this, and I'm excited because it's coming from you, all right? So tell us in layman terms, first and foremost, the definition of social and emotional learning to you.
1: Thank you again, Kristen, thank you for having me, and um, I hope that this is going to be really beneficial for everybody. So social emotional learning, or what we call SEL, um, is... Basically, a way for all stakeholders, meaning uh, adults and children, to be able to manage their emotions, uh, specifically around what we call the five core competencies, um, as outlined by the Collaborative of Academics and Social Emotional Learning, which are uh, self-awareness, self-management, social and cultural awareness, um, relationship skills, and then responsible decision-making.
2: Awesome. Okay, so where do you think we are? Like, because I know we, you know, talk about um, just a lot of the buy-in with schools now and educators, and it's it's not easy when you are pioneering something that's new but kind of not new at the same time. Um, So, can we? Can you talk to um, us specifically about the social emotional partnership with educators now and like what you think their commitment is to it as of? today?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So what I would say first and foremost is that education is not really that different from um, other other avenues. So you have medicine, you have um, politics, you have all these different, uh, different sort of mechanisms mm-hmm. that operate together. Education is not, you know, absolved from all the different things that affect those other mechanisms as well. What I mean by that is that every, everybody sort of operates on these hot button, you know, sort of topics or issues or like the new shiny toy, so to speak, that comes along, right? So you hear this a lot in sports, for instance, you know, with the NFL and the NBA and the way certain things happen and everybody now tries to replicate and duplicate that. Well, education is no different, right? And so um, if you're thinking about social and emotional learning as a new thing, I like to say it's more of a nuanced thing, right? Meaning that it is becoming much more explicit and identified in the way that we actually operate so that SEL can live and breathe in education in general. And when I say in education I'm talking about educating the entire student, the whole child so to speak, right? And so it's not just about the lesson plan and the literal academic pieces that an adult typically is trying to ensure that a student is able to understand, capture, and then recreate. So we're not talking about just the pedagogical aspects mm-hmm. of academics. We're talking really about every single interaction, every single space, every single part of uh, the school day. So if you think about it, literally from the moment a child walks into the building to the moment that they leave. Yeah. Every school experience that they have should be informed by social and emotional learning. And so right now, educators feel like, for the most part, it's either something new that they don't understand and be, are being asked to do, or it's something that they are already been doing and already bought in mm-hmm. and are doing well. Um, And then you have the educators, of course, who are just like, okay, it sounds good, and I want to learn it, but it causes me pause because now I have to start to address my own issues. And so when you're thinking about social emotional learning with educators, it sounds great when you're that teacher who's like, all right, this is something new. It sounds good. I want to do it. But then when you start to realize that you have what's called an invisible backpack yourself, you Mm -hmm. bring backpack with you yeah. as you come to work every day as you're interacting with the adults in the building as you're interacting with the students and that invisible backpack can contain so many different things prejudices bias and so on issues um, from childhood experiences your own aces right what we call average childhood experiences mm-hmm. backpack contains so many different things and so what we've found is is that Um, As we continue to really be intentional about social and emotional learning, that the adults themselves are also struggling with trying to deal with their own social and emotional learning. And so once they start to deal with that, we're we're experiencing a range of responses from adults and from students uh, when it comes to SEL.
2: Yes. Oh, my gosh. This is so good. Um, Thank you, Sam, for like breaking that down, because it this is like all refers back to some of the dangers of the mind like that our, our teachers actually go through is fear and insecurity and brokenness and complacency. So as they're like figuring out their lives and their core values and things that they were not physically talk, you know, in school, um, as they're figuring those things out with our kids, it's, it, it it's a different environment. It's a different tone. So I, I wanted to just really highlight that because, um, that's really what I believe. And I know we both see it on ground levels, you know, on different types of levels to be able to experience, um, teachers that are, are, are learning and teaching at the same exact time. So I think that is very important to highlight. Um, so, like, what do you feel is true buy-in? Uh, like, as you are looking at a teacher, any type of teacher, what do you think that looks like to you? What does that teacher look like to you?
1: So, true buy-in, um, when it comes to SEL, is, again, something that, the way that I, I like to uh, quantify it, is that it is something that literally um, is part and parcel of the ethos, the fabric um mm-hmm everything that educators are doing right or all adults i should say that stand in front of kids or that interact with kids on a day-to-day basis and so true buy-in means literally being able to if you're just a classroom teacher being able to look at your lessons look at the uh, uh the unit look at the assessments look at all these different things um and say how can i ensure that those five core competencies are included in everything that I am about to stand in front of these students and be able to um, get them to try to understand. So whatever lesson that you're about to give them right across all subject matters. That's another thing is that that true buy-in really is something that adults uh, struggle with because they think that belongs in certain pockets Mm. that social workers and counselors and psychologists that does not, and maybe, you know, deans or, you know, director of culture and climate or behavior personnel or whatever the case may be, um, that it doesn't belong with classroom teachers or with instructional coaches or with assistant principals and so on. So that's the first thing that we have to ensure that that thought process, that mindset has to change. And so when we're talking about true buy-in, we're talking about first a mindset shift. Second, we have to understand that as we're trying to now get that buy-in, folks need to understand that SEL is something that you're literally doing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Wow. It's not something that you just do here and there. It's not something that you only do in ELA or in math or in mm-hmm. science. It's not something that you're just doing in that enrichment club after school program, mm-hmm. right? That you're just doing, you know, on the on the uh field or on court or on the track. It's something that you're literally doing all the time. Wow. So and from the classroom uh, perspective of, of a classroom teacher, looks like literally being able to see how self-awareness, self-management, relationship skills, responsible decision-making all show up in every single lesson, all show up in your assessments. And what does that look like potentially? Okay, well, if it's a math um Class and I'm I'm a math teacher and I'm trying to figure out well how am I supposed to make all these different things show up? Well, when you have a word problem, how are you writing that word problem, and how are you including your students' very unique experiences in those word problems? Mm. Right. Talked about, for instance, standardized testing. Well, standardized testing, some people love it, some people hate it. You know, but part of the issues that we've talked about when it comes to standardized testing is that standardized t- testing is. Is really institutional racism at part of its a part of its finest, right? We're talking about kids, for instance. Um, one example that that came up that I was, you know, reading about was kids talking about uh, a, a question specific to golf courses, right? And then question became, well, how many students K through twelve, okay? have been on a golf course to be able to understand what a golf course looks like, how it is designed, right? Mm. Uh, all those different things and say, well, if I don't know, if I cannot visualize what a golf course even looks like, then how am I supposed to be able to answer a question based on the dimensions of a golf course? Mm. And so again, that's that goes into the, the aspects of the access and opportunity gap and how that is a potential, r- potentially racist um, right. question. But even more race, even more than that, is it, it's definitely a classist uh, question, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on the type of class you're in, you may or may not have the opportunity to be exposed to what a golf course could potentially look like before you're uh, 18 years old and potentially graduating from high school.
0: Mm-hmm. These wow. are
1: the types of things when we're talking about buy-in. Buy-in is being able to look at a question like that and say, actually, you know what? I'm going to change that question to something else that might actually look more like the community that they are in so that they can literally visualize it and feel like that question is also representative of who they are Mm -hmm. as a person. Wow. Buy-in is that educator being able to say, again, I'm going to do... That the little bit of extra work that I need to do to ensure that my students can access this information, and by accessing it, we're not just talking about reading; we're talking about all the different aspects of learning and differentiation. We're talking about a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We're talking about depths depths of knowledge. We're talking about you know um, all the different uh, styles of learning. Right, like. Are auditory learners. Some people are visual learners. Some people are kinesthetic learners. Yeah. Some people learn in so many different ways, right? And so, true buy-in is that principal, that custodian, that um, uh, the the security guard, the counselor, the teacher, the the admin, the behavior personnel, the community partners who are coming in to serve schools, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, mm-hmm. but all these different stakeholders, the people who are making decisions, policy decisions at the district level, the people who are making those political and policy decisions um, at, at the the macro level, right? So we're talking about all different types of levels. And that's why we, we talk about social emotional learning being something that goes into schools and school communities. Um, and it's really important for us to understand how dynamic and how deep This has to go in order for real.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I 100 percent agree. Like and I'm so happy that you ended off with uh, speaking on the community because that's where I was going next. It's like there's such a deeper partnership um, that I believe a lot of people are leaving off the table when pushing social emotional learning. And so. I know you know that social emotional learning needs to be deeply embedded in our communities and in, in our homes um just not in our schools, so can you speak to the the, the whole buy in and the effects on that for any type of, uh, of you know environment
1: absolutely absolutely um and so from when we're talking about the whole buy in and i and I'm gonna just talk about community partners just for a second, mm-hmm. how important it is for or those individuals who are community partners who come, especially underserved communities, right? So we're talking about communities that typically are filled with students and uh, families of color. Um, And we're talking about typically uh, low social uh, economic statuses, or at least are working class to potentially lower class um, individuals Um, and even people who are maybe transitioning, trying to get out of the working class and go into uh, the middle class. So we're talking about all different facets of it. If you are a community partner and you are not doing the work of racial justice, of social justice and racial justice specifically, if you are not culturally and socially aware, and you're not trying to be, if that is not a topic and an issue that you are dealing with on a day to day basis, then it is imperative that before you go into an underserved community, you do that work. The reason why I say that is because we talk about the whole concept of of the savior, so to speak, right I, I'm, I'm coming in to save these kids. Yep. we have a lot of organizations who come in with that mindset of we're going to come in to save these kids, and that does not work. In fact, that is not what we want. If we're talking about being culturally and socially aware, which is a core competency um, in social emotional learning, then we don't want individuals coming in who are not doing that work. Because then what ends up happening is you're reinforcing that opportunity and access gap without realizing it. So I just want that we put that out there up front before and, you know, before we even move forward. Okay, um,
2: I want to touch on something really quick. So sure. so when you spoke to that how do you feel and this is just you can briefly talk about this and we can continue to go. But how do you feel about um teachers who of course do not look like their students in that population. Um how do you what is the disconnect? How do you feel or how do you feel to the need of the disconnect in those type of schools? Um, that they cannot connect, of course, with their teachers, even if social-emotional learning is being taught because there's a race issue.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So I I feel personally um, that teachers of all demographics are capable of teaching no matter what the demographic of the student population and the school community's population is. I believe they're capable. Right. But I also believe that those individuals have to be able to one understand where their racial and racialized biases are.
0: Right.
1: And where they land in the um in the in the uh paradigm, so to speak, of 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 racial, racialized uh institutionalized racism, as well as the sort of practical aspects of racism. And so they cannot be individuals who are Colorblind, for instance, right? We talk about people who believe that, you know, everybody's the same and everyone has an equal opportunity. And I don't think that I, as a black person, am better than a white person or a white person better than a Filipino person or 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 anything like that. We cannot have individuals who are colorblind. We cannot have individuals who believe that if kids just stop sagging their pants or putting tattoos on their neck, then problem solved, we will be able to get somewhere. We can have people who think, for instance, that, you know, um, that there are not issues when it comes to really thinking about how uh, certain kids are labeled sped way more than other kids. And actually uh, believe that, for instance, that that black males are more, you know, uh, e- emotionally disturbed or intellectually disabled. So we have to ensure that those individuals who want to be educators in urban settings and in settings uh, where race is an issue, where uh, class is an issue, where economic status is an issue, and where there are all these different other isms going on, that you are doing that work every day. You cannot take days off because your students don't get to take a day off from whatever it is that they are dealing with and facing. Right. right. So you cannot take a day off, right? You can't come and say, I'm going to teach from 8 to 3 and then leave, and then come in the next day. And then once you leave, you're completely absolved of everything, right? Because that's not the way that it works, particularly when we're talking about an access and opportunity gap. There's a reason there's a gap to begin with. And so those individuals, are they capable? Yes. Capable only if you are doing the work every single day. Right. Because you have to be able to connect with your students past, what it is that's on some standardized test question.
2: Awesome. Thank you. I just wanted you to speak to that because I believe that was really important. Um, and so, uh, so just very quickly, cause I want to go on to like I have two more things that I want to dive into really quick, but um, just speak to the need of, you know, social emotional learning being embedded in the communities. Um, I know we talked about community partners, um, but just in the community as far as, um, Politicians, you know, uh, community leaders, just just understanding the importance of it. Parents, especially in the homes, um, understanding the importance of it, and and really allowing it to be embedded into our communities even more.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm going to go macro, uh, and then I'm going to go micro. Okay. Macro level, right? uh, We're talking about literal policies that are being designed, that are being written and are being enacted uh, on behalf of, and I want to be very clear on that, on behalf of, okay, so not not that it has students of color in mind, not that it has the nuances of what students of color may or may not be facing on a day-to-day basis, but these decisions are being made on behalf of them, not including them in the narrative, right? So, we have to be able to understand that with social and emotional learning, what that sounds or looks like in terms of total buy-in is being able to say that, for instance, um, we're not going to have a full-on dress code, uh, okay? If we have a, a dress code or uh, a uniform policy that does not allow, without the mechanisms, you can have a, a dress code or uniform policy without the mechanisms to ensure that Every single person is able to afford to, one, have multiple pairs of whatever it is that they need uh, in terms of that uniform, and then also be able to keep it clean
2: Mm
1: -hmm. so that students are not showing up or students don't say things like, well, my uniform was dirty, so I'm not coming to school.
2: Right.
1: Uh, If I know that I'm not going to be able to wash clothes because we wash clothes together one time every two weeks or whatever that might sound like in my, in, my, um, in my household, then absolutely, I'm not going to want to come to school because I don't want to come to school and be the kid with the dirty uniform.
2: Right.
1: But when people are writing policy, for instance, at the macro level, they may not be thinking about that. And that is not social and emotionally, culturally relevant. So, again, when we're talking about being culturally aware, that's just one example of how we see equity start to really flourish within the different demographics of, uh, of schooling, of education. And so if we continue with that narrative and now we replicate and duplicate that in every single type of decision that we are making, we start to see much more of an opportunity and access gap continue to widen. Mm. So that looks like is, all right, we have a policy for uh, pick up and drop off. Well, maybe in this community, a lot of people have to work multiple jobs. Right. So we don't have a mechanism that allows for, uh, for parents to have um, flexibility around uh, before school programming and after school programming so that students are able to access that. And so if a parent is only able to say, you know, come Uh, work overnight, uh, sleep, and then they have to go back to work again in the evening. How does that work in terms of pickup and drop off? How does that work in terms of uniforms? How how does that work in terms of what we are determining students on this side um, with higher social emotional, um, I mean, higher social economic statuses are able to eat in the cafeteria versus what students on this side are not able to eat? Right. How do we determine how we zone districts For instance, so that students can access uh, different types of schools, right? How do we make the decisions between how many public and how many charter schools we're going to open? How do we make decisions between who gets what grants versus who does not? Who gets what scholarships versus who does not? How do we determine, for instance, what the graduation requirements are for everybody? And then make that so that, again, it is informed through the cultural, and social awareness piece, mm. a responsible decision making by thinking about students of all demographic graphics in mind. Now, what I am not saying is lowering expectations. What I'm not saying is saying have a different set of rules in, uh, for their, uh, for students. You know, on one side of the economic status versus on, on, on the other, or on one side of the race, racial, um, racial paradigm versus the other. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that it is not a, a, a if-but, it is an and situation. Yeah. Yeah. We can do all of these things. Right. You have a, 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 a system that it does not allow for equity and is not designed for equity, then you're consistently fighting this battle at the macro level. Hmm. Because what we then do is we have to then react and respond each time Mm -hmm. if we have for instance different uh types of teacher training programs and saying okay well we're going to put the most um inexperienced teachers in the highest need highest need populations how does that make sense how does that work Mm -hmm i say, well, young teachers, you know, or, or uh, teacher training programs are innovative and they set up for innovation. Okay. But are you ensuring that somebody who goes to school to teach, right? You know, for uh, who goes into some program and does it for six to eight weeks or 12 weeks or whatever case may be during that time, are you ensuring that at every step of the way they are informed in what social and cultural awareness is yeah. and that they have. A culturally responsive pedagogy in their mind at every step of the way because if you're not if you're not what you're actually doing again is reinforcing institutionalized racism because we know that teacher training programs are overwhelmingly filled with white people yeah and so because of that what you're doing is you you send white people to areas and say okay you've done this program for 12 weeks now let's go go ahead and and go save these kids. Mm-hmm. And they might have you know really great ideas and ideologies, and they may really feel like you know this is something that they really want to do, but they are not equipped to do it.
2: Yeah,
1: They're prepared no, to do it. They're not trained to do it. And oftentimes, when they get to those areas, principals might say, "Well, this person is going to cost me forty thousand dollars." Uh, uh, a year less than this person who is experienced. So obviously I'm going to go with that because that extra 40, extra 30, extra $10,000 is going to now allow me to be able to do other things within my budget. Mm -hmm. And so this is where we start to really kind of see how when we're talking about buy-in and the effects of buy-in in our communities, all these different decisions that are made at different levels really start to ensure that the access and opportunity gap Widens as opposed to closes. Right. And so we're talking about in our homes, for instance, we're saying, okay, in our homes, now we're talking about what school communities are. Now we're talking about what community partners are able to do. And now we're talking about parent engagement. Now we're talking about how we incorporate families into what social and cultural awareness is and what is happening in education in general but also at the micro level, what's happening every day in the school building.
2: Right. Right.
1: Exactly. How are we? Yes. So how are we actually doing that? And how do we How do we plan on doing that? How do we want to ensure that parents are very much involved? And so uh, that looks like a lot of different things. But again, it looks like, OK, if are we are we going to say, well, we have a parent night, but we're not going to provide the um child care
0: mm-hmm.
1: we're not going to provide a meal for those parents to eat or snacks for those parents to eat we're not going to provide potentially multiple opportunities for parents to come First Vers- thing it's only going to be tuesday at 5 p.m and then tuesday at 5 p.m at 5 30 nobody's there and now we're like oh look look see that's what we're talking about parent these these parents of these kids never show up but is that equitable is that was that designed with incorporating including as many of the different nuances of what social uh, uh, social economic statuses and uh, uh, covers in that situation? So we have to think about how we engage in parents. Are we doing um, uh, home visits? Are are parents aware of the different types of um, community partners are available? if we have uh if we have situations where parents are working not working are we are we as a school community giving them the opportunity to be able to to learn so for instance um a school that i worked at at one time had a parent center where parents could come in they could literally do everything from resume building they could do everything from um if they spoke multiple languages and English was not their first language, they could they were able to learn how to speak English better. Um, they were able to do just a, a bunch of different things. And by engaging parents in that authentic manner, right now you're allowing those parents to both grow their skills, their repertoire, their reserves is being grown through the school and the school community. And now parent engagement does not continue to be such a such a huge issue, mm. right? But if we're not being intentional in that way, and we're not allowing and growing their skills, but then we say, well, we need you to come in because you're the parent. Well, those days are, are gone, right? We we have to be able to do a little bit more for our parents, for our communities. How are we talking to the local business owners?
0: Yeah. And then
1: by extension, by extension, and this may not be the most popular thing that anybody's going to hear, but by extension... Those local business owners, are they going to be brought into the school and school community?
2: Exactly. Exactly. And I, I even wanted to add about the, the truancy. My, my father, a while ago, he told me about that there were truancy police that would come to kids' houses and knock on their doors and say, hey, why aren't you in school? I think those things need to start back. I really do. I think that in our, in our underserved communities that we need to hold our parents accountable, but we also need to support our parents because this is where we are. You know, this is exactly where we are. Where there are there are lots of young um, parents that that are having babies. You know, and they they need additional support. It's sad to say, but it's reality. And so, if we can bring some of those things, I don't even know what that how that looks on on the level on a district level on you know a central level. But bringing those people to um, bringing those people to understand like. The need for it, you know, in the community and the support for our parents is is really important too. Um, But I mean, everything you know you you said has been um, extremely, extremely. I'm just insightful and 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 I know it's helpful to people that's listening right now. But even on the work that they can do and continue to do moving forward, I think it is really, really important. Um, in the depth that you you just took the time to to talk to us today about. Um, I want to just wrap up because we have to have you back. Like we have to have you back. This is not even a question because um, it's so much more information that we really need to dig into yes
0: Um, um,
2: but I want to tell you to leave something with our listeners today like I what do you have to to leave because I know you have so much um, just insight on on social emotional learning but then also just the the the, you know the need for what this is actually going to do to shift our culture. Um, but what do you think um, is the most important thing you can leave with our listeners today?
1: That's a great question. Um, I would say the, the most important thing I'm going to leave is that there's hope. Um, we, we are not, you know, there, there's a narrative that others need to come into our communities in order for our communities to, to thrive. And what I would like to say is, is that we are the best agents for our communities. Yes. Um, we, we are the ones who can literally make sure that this thing starts to change and that it starts to turn and that as a the more empowered we become, the more we will be able to address all these issues. And so uh Kristen you are doing a phenomenal job. And I'm going to leave leave with this. Is it dangers of the mind or dangers of the time? Now I'll let you marinate mm. that question a little bit um as I look forward to the next time. And maybe we can flesh out that question a little bit.
2: Absolutely. Wow. I love it. Dangers of the mind or dangers of the time. Woo. That's powerful. Okay. Listen, guys. So I'm excited. Um, I'm revved up right now. Sam got me over here revved up. You know, I want to go write a book. (laughs) Just for (laughs) listening to everything he's talked about. Um, So tune in next week uh, and follow us on dangers of the mind on Um, every platform. Uh, If you would like to get in touch with Sam, um, I'll probably try to see if we can put his information uh, in the actual title uh, on the episode. Um, So thanks again, Sam, for your time. And um, you guys have to remember to walk uh, in purpose and live on purpose. Thank you so much.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Kristen. I appreciate it.
0: The Dangers of the Mind Podcast. The the, the Dangers of the Mind Podcast with Kristen Hopkins.